Netta Parker. There's a warm feeling in my chest that reaches all the way down to my legs. It's a feeling that make the stars feel so close that maybe, just maybe, if I reached high enough, I could touch them. For it's a feeling that makes the sky feel limitless. It smells like home, it looks like the fall, but feels as warm as a summer night. It's not too hot or too cold, but just right. It sounds like Anita Baker and Marvin Gaye, but speaks to your heart like Donnie McClurkin. I don't feel like an outsider here, but I feel welcome. It's weird to say it, but my cheeks hurt so much from smiling. They suck at hiding in this place, and although I hate showing my teeth, they must liberate themselves in your presence. I feel safe. Safe enough to forget the small things. And within seconds, I become lost in the ambiance of your eyes. Lost. And if I'm being honest, I have no intentions of being found anytime soon, for I'd rather be lost in your eyes and lost in your love for the rest of my life. Welcome to Rethinking Manhood. Welcome to another episode of Rethinking Manhood. If you're new here, Rethinking Manhood is a podcast and community where we bring men and masculine folks together to unlearn patriarchal masculinity, to grow and learn and heal together. Now, I've been gone for a few weeks, and it's because I have not had capacity to continue doing this in the way that I did. (laughs) And part of when I did have the capacity, part of me was like, I don't want to. And it is what it is. I've been working on practicing what I preach, and I think that some of the things that I believe come with implications, right? So if I say that I really believe in rest as a form of resistance, and if I say I don't want to, you know, if I say I'm anti-capitalist, I have to show that, right? That means that I'm going to choose myself over the podcast. Um, but being back in the, into this space has just filled my cup. I've missed you all so much, and I hope you have missed me as well. Today, we have a very special and exciting episode with one of my soul friends, Johnny Cole. Um, And today, we're going to be talking about relationships. So I wanted to start this episode off with a little poem um, dedicated to my partner um, to kind of center and ground this conversation. All you need to know right now is that Johnny is a great, fantastic, and wise human being. And I, I feel like I said human bead, <laughs> but for the longest, I thought it was bead and not being. Johnny is an amazing human being. Um, and yeah, you are in for a special treat. I hope you enjoyed this episode. All right, we are back for another episode of Rethinking Manhood, where we bring men and masculine folks together to unlearn patriarchal masculinity and, yes, build all of our business. We tell all of our business uh, on this podcast. And I am joined today with the lovely human, uh, such a beautiful soul. Like, I don't know if y'all know the song Beautiful Soul by, um, is it what, Jesse McCartney? Is that his name? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, Johnny <laughs> a is a beautiful 
a throwback, okay? And Johnny is a beautiful soul. Uh, and yeah, today we're going to talk about a lot of cool stuff. But before we get there, I want to give Johnny the chance to introduce themselves uh, and just kind of share more about who they are, the identities that they have that uh, may show up and impact this conversation. Mm. Thank you so much, Dustin. Received, heard, and reciprocated. You are also such a beautiful soul, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to join you in dialogue because your podcast and your Instagram page has been something I've followed enthusiastically for months and months now. So really feel grateful and uh, privileged to be in conversation with you. And as you said, my name is Johnny, uh, Johnny Cole, and I am uh, 25-year-old uh, white cis man. My pronouns are they, he. And I am passionate, just like you are, about building communities of men who are stoked on healthy masculinity and unlearned patriarchal masculinity. So I'm here to commune with you about these wonderful topics. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. I'm so glad that you could make some time to be here. Uh, it's interesting because I think something that has been like a whole life theme of mine, maybe the past year, no, maybe the past two years is love. Love has been such a big theme of mine and really trying to be intentional about living my life uh, with the love ethic as described by Bell Hooks. Um, and with that, I think when I started asking questions about love and thinking more intentionally about love, I realized that it had to change the way that I engaged and interacted in all of my relationships from my the way I interact with my friends, to my coworkers, to my family, uh, and to my partner. Shout out to Nizzle P. She calls herself Nizzle P. I don't know why she calls herself Nizzle P, um, but shout out to Nizzle P. And I am curious for you, you know, how has patriarchy influenced or shaped the relationships in your life? Uh, mm -hmm. But kind of thinking more like romantically. Yeah, absolutely. So... That's a wonderful question, and it's very complex to unpack because I think one of my greatest struggles in unlearning patriarchal masculinity and becoming more comfortable with expressing love hmm. romantically and platonically is taking a step back and evaluating how my boyhood self witnessed hmm. love and how that was modeled for me in society and in my own home. Hmm. I did not have an upbringing where my parents were very physically affectionate with one another or even verbally affectionate. And so besides in films and movies and literature, I really didn't have a good example of what real down to earth, you know, human to human love looked like. And under heteronormativity, if you're watching movies, if you're watching Disney movies, things like that, as a child, you really think of love as this thing where the man steps in and kind of saves the princess or really pursues mm -hmm. the princess and tries to pine for her affection and win her over. Mm. And that stuck with me through my teenage years and into young adulthood. And now as a young man, I reflect and realize that going through phases of serious relationships, monogamous relationships, that has colored my engagement in these relationships is really being the quote unquote pursuer and being the, the active role in, in trying to date this other person. Um, and the, the patriarchy, patriarchal masculinity tells us that that's the script and that's how it should go down. I think that's affected my feeling of, of self-worth and understanding of how I could be desired and whether or not I could be pursued or, or how someone could express interest in me. Um, so yeah, those are my initial thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
No, that brings up so many thoughts. I was um, having a conversation with my therapist a few months ago and she asked me a question. It was something like, how do you like to be loved? And what was so funny about that question is I, I have no idea what to say because I think partially as to what you were describing is I grew up seeing uh, this image and being taught that the man is the chaser, the man is the provider. So I think that I've always been intentional about thinking, you know, what is the love that I want to give to my partner? How do I want to pursue her? How do I want to provide for her? But not always thinking about like, okay, but what about me? Like, how do I want to receive love? What feels good Mm -hmm. for me? I'm also curious too, you know, you talked earlier, earlier about how your experiences as a young person were shaping uh, the way that you uh, kind of just saw love. I'm curious, like, what was your perception um, of love based on what you saw growing up, um, like, at home? Well, my father was someone who didn't verbalize affection very often. Hmm. And the way that he would justify or talk about how much he loved us, loved my mother, loved myself, loved my sister is honestly through what he was willing to do for us. Hmm. I love you so much that if anyone attacked you, I would, I would kill them. I would kill for you or something like that. Um, really based around not just violence in that case. And I think that's particular to him because he, he was um, involved in the military in another country and that's a whole lot to unpack there. But I think for many men, we feel that under patriarchal masculinity, it's this acts of service, but not just day-to-day service. How can I show up for you? It's grand gestures and kind of white knighting. And, and that ties into what I just said about the Disney movies is that there is some grand gesture, some, some saving of a princess from a dragon or a kiss that wakes her up and saves her from the spell or the curse, right? There's this grand act. And that is how you literally demonstrate love. Hmm. And that prevents us and inhibits us, I think, from seeing the nuance in love. That's the little things and showing up daily and how love intertwines in in different aspects of our relationships, both platonic and romantic. Um, So I think as a boy, I really thought that I could prove my love for other people and there would come a time when I would have to demonstrate it likely through some big physical act. And I'm 25 now and that actually hasn't really taken place. I've never had to fight off someone to, you know, defend my partner, um, you know, thankfully. And uh, so that hasn't been a feature and I've had to learn a little bit more about what does love mean um, to me and, and in general, what are some of the healthy ways that we can express love? And it's been quite a turbulent learning discovery journey, actually, and unlearning a lot. Hmm. No, that is so real. It makes me, did you ever watch the cheetah girls? Um, <laughs> yes. Okay, that song. Uh, Cinderella was deep. I don't want to be like Cinderella sitting in a dark, cool, dusty cellar waiting for Yeah. Something. Like that song is so, I was like, wow, they was with, they were ahead of the times. Oh my gosh, they were. Yeah, that's, I mean, that speaks to the passivity, which patriarchal masculinity ascribes to women as stakeholders in loving romantic relationships, right? And again, we're going to be talking a lot in the heteronormative lens, Mm -hmm. um, but I think that waiting around for a man to come and save you and demonstrate love in some way puts a lot of pressure on young girls and women to wait around and be passive and not take as active of a role. 
And I think that's self-harming, but it also harms young boys and men in feeling like we shouldn't be pursued or desired and, and that it's this constant pressure for us to go out and, and demonstrate. Um, and that's not really a social script that makes me feel good. And it's not one that makes me feel uh, like I have equal reciprocal attention in, on me that then I have to to give out um, in patriarchal masculinity and, and dating culture. Um, and I also think that this narrative leads to hookup culture and rape culture. It contributes to attitudes that actually harm both men and women because mm. of that pursuit, that pursuit of romance uh, in a, in a skewed way. So um, yeah. Yeah. I even think too, how sometimes I think uh, when we talk about like the way we encourage men to see themselves as the pursuer, I think, with that comes like this toxic persistence of like men not being able to take no, as you were talking about, they can't take no really well. Or I think there's this perception of like, oh yeah, you just keep asking and eventually someone will say yes. And it's like, no, if I said no, the answer is no. Um, Something I'm curious about is, and you were talking about this earlier, but what does love look like for you? So I'm curious one of like, what are the ways that you have tried to express it from a patriarchal lens? So thinking about before you kind of uh, went on this journey of unlearning patriarchal masculinity, and then what do you think are the healthy ways within relationships or maybe the non-patriarchal ways that you can show love to a partner? Hmm. When I was younger and when I first had my boyhood crushes and into middle school and high school, I think I was a lot more traditionally romantic based on the influence of some of these films and also my personality. I'm inherently someone who is gentle and sweet. And I was someone who wanted to write letters or uh, make grand gestures. I remember in high school, very embarrassingly, I actually painted a portrait of a girl that I had a crush on who wanted nothing to do with me, but I thought that it was a a romantic gesture. Um, And I think that it probably made her feel uncomfortable also because of my like social status and like lower hierarchy, I think in the uh, maturity of high school, but that was a real learning experience for me because I think it resulted in a little bit of bullying and, and, it was not accepted warmly. <laughs> um, and so that really started to socialize me and teach me, Hey, I've got to tone this down and let me observe what are some of the ways other boys and young men are talking about women and engaging with women. And it didn't always make me feel good because in a lot of settings, whether it was locker rooms or sports teams or just around other boys, the ways that they would talk about women were not, or girls, excuse me, were, were not sweet. They were not kind and they were not romantic. Uh, sometimes one-on-one, you'd get a gem of a boy opening up to you about his crush or relationship. But overall, I wasn't hearing any messaging about sweetness or romance or first dates or handholding. And so I started to feel guilty and bad, like there was something soft, right, in the negative way mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. or wanting those things. So as I went into college and the later parts of high school, it was really important to me still to let women and girls set the set the precedent, which was still counterculture to patriarchal masculinity of like pursuit. And it was really influenced by a lot of high school friends of mine. I was always closer with girls. 
girls and a lot of high school friends of mine would disclose experiences of sexual assault or feeling coerced into having sex or to, you know, engaging in sexual acts with other boys that we knew at school. And that really uh, kind of vicariously traumatized me and made me feel like, wow, I never want to be someone who, who makes a woman or a girl feel like that. Mm. So I was really almost nervous to, um, to be proactive and to, to be part of that pursuit narrative. But uh, nonetheless, I have done the grand displays of affection. I have really mm. asked out on dates and tried to give flowers and, um, and like text frequently and, um, for my first relationship, I still did the the letter writing and here's how I feel about you. This grand, you know, uh, grand profession of, of love. And, and sometimes it was reciprocated. Sometimes it wasn't, but I, I feel like I'm trailing off a little bit here. Um, so that, that I would say we're, we're historically, like even with my most recent relationship, I, I, I did, it's sweet, but I did feel pressured into getting her favorite candy and, and like, putting out this whole picnic spread and surprising her with flowers. And these are, these are romantic things. These are great things, but that was very much a social script. Me, me thinking like, this is how I do it. This is how I get her to like me is by doing things for her and showing her like, you know, these, these things. Um, and so I think I'm still, still unpacking that and uh, understanding how does romance fit into my life in a non patriarchal way. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying, it makes me think just about how patriarchy influences and impacts everyone. Um, and I think that something I have learned in navigating relationships is having certain women still have patriarchal norms for me. And I think too, that like, there's a trauma that comes with dating patriarchal men. And I think part of the impact of that trauma is when men aren't like super patriarchal, like, you know, our modeling has always been patriarchal men in relationships. And I think when men are not embodying that patriarchal masculinity, it can be challenging for some women um, because it may go against what some of their normal experiences uh, have been up until that point. So I think that um, something, I mean, I can't explore this topic because I've been in a relationship for three years, but I, I think that it's also a bit lonely sometimes for men who are unlearning patriarchy because I think that they realize that these same expectations um, exist, not just with men, but, uh, you know, if, if they're a straight man, they might exist with the potential women that they're interested in. Wow. That's, that's a really, that resonated with me because I think up until very recently, I just got out of a relationship about two months ago. That was a, a two year monogamous relationship. But um, historically that has been my experience is a lot of times feeling embarrassed and like, I'm not what a woman is used to or expects in some ways or that I'm some superlative. And I mean this in the, the least arrogant way possible. But in a patriarchal masculine culture where there is this pursuit lens and hookup culture, and obviously this contributes to rape culture and, and pressure and coercion, all these things, I have often been one of the first men that a, a woman has been with that asks, hey, is this okay? Mm. While we're engaging in you know, making out or starting to, to get sexual, um, a lot of women have, have told me whether it's during or after the fact, like, wow, that was so refreshing. I've never been asked this before. And I'm like, 
we're both in our twenties. That's yeah. that's crazy. And that also makes me feel really sad. And that also makes me feel like I have a lot of pressure on me to continue the bare minimum expectation. Right. But it is sadly superlative for a lot of women's experiences in history. And so um, you're right in that it can be lonely, but it can also be vicariously traumatic and sad. This realization that so many women when dating and getting out of there are, are really just going through cycles of patriarchal men who are not, um, not the greatest at, at recognizing how to love fully, how to be emotionally available, regulate their own emotions, things like that. Hmm. You know, something that you made me think of earlier, uh, when we were, I, I wrote down, I was, I've been taking notes as you've been talking, but I've wrote down, uh, love bombing and mm-hmm. something I thought of is before I, was in therapy. I think that I, oh yeah, I think I kind of did do this, but I think I kind of used women as my therapist. Like before I knew how to process my emotions, talk about my feelings. I think that whatever woman I was dating became like, yeah, the person who received everything in a super intense way. And I think that sometimes I have seen that show up, you know, with some of my friends when they're dating women where it's like when they can't talk about their own stuff, when they don't know how to process their own stuff, they kind of expect women to do the work for them and to be their therapist. Um, And then when it doesn't work out, they just like, it's almost like they go and find a new therapist. Right. Wow. Raising my hands (laughs) as well. I think to, to varying degrees, depending on how much learned patriarchy you have to, to unpack all men do this. Um, yeah. And it's probably also quite universal beyond the lines of sexuality as well, because men who are um, queer probably also get along better with women mm-hmm. and men who aren't queer, but are just less inherently masculine as, as in our unhealthily, you know, toxically masculine culture. Like we also get along better with women and um that results in us always feeling more comfortable with vulnerability around women because we all have, again, even cis straight men have a wound with the patriarchy, many wounds. And one of those Mm. is honestly never feeling fully safe around other men. Mm. And I don't think that a lot of men would admit or realize that, but Mm. it is to me a universal truth that most men Mm. and boys do not feel safe around other men and boys. And the reason being is we have this false hierarchy of masculinity where you are always in danger of being teased or brought down so that another man can secure his position somewhere of higher on the, on the hierarchy. And at the bottom of this hierarchy are women and gay men because it's misogynistic. That's, that's the result is that misogyny, the worst thing you can be is a woman. And the second worst is a gay man because that's most akin to a woman, right? Mm. So I, I truly believe that most men are walking around and boys are walking around in a state of hypervigilance, even when they're around their friends, because you never know when some biting remark or teasing will take place. And that guard prevents us from being vulnerable and really speaking our truth outside the context of alcohol, maybe right. Drinking. Oh, I was just drinking. So that's why I could cry in front of my, my boys or my friend um, and confide in them. But to bring it back to what you were saying about using women for emotional labor and as our therapists, that is one of the 
acceptable realms where we can do this, right? Because women are expected to do emotional labor. Women are expected to be more sensitive and be more caring, right? We put those burdens and pressures on them. It's just inherent for women, right? Quote, unquote. Um, so a lot of men feel that that's the, ven- the, the one venue that they can take, specifically mm-hmm. with romantic partners, but also with all women, because I, I think a lot of us do that with our, our women friends as well, right? Mm-hmm. I, I have personally done this for sure. Um, but it's something that I'm also really hypervigilant about to a fault. So sometimes I think I, as you know, the older I get, sometimes the less I'll share with a friend who's a woman, because I'm like, Oh my God, I don't want them to think I'm, you know, I got to check if they have the space for this. And sometimes it's like, relax, like (laughs) they are also a friend and you can confide in a friend. So, um, no, I, I, I resonate with that as well as, realizing that, you know, your girlfriend or your partner is not your end all be all for therapists, you know, sexual partner, like best friend, like all of this stuff is it's, you can't get everything from one person, but so often men feel that's what they need to do. Say that. Oh my God. You are teaching. When you, (laughs) when you said most men and boys don't feel safe around other men, I got kind of warm because I, I like, you know, I, th- I felt this warmth and discomfort come over me uh, mm. because I know how real that's been for me, uh, especially as you were talking about teasing and how I think that like so much of building relationships with men involves like that banter and that teasing. And it just made me think back to my personal experience of really deeply internalizing a lot of those messages, like the things that were just jokes growing up, like became things that I really did internalize, Um, which kind of leads me uh, shifting gears, but totally related. Um, Something that has been interesting to me, I'm also a person uh, who has mostly been friends with women for, I don't know, probably since the time I can remember, Uh, but I probably started noticing it more probably when I was like 13 or 14. Um, I think something that that's come with for me, and I've always thought this was weird, but with almost every friendship that I have with a woman, especially if it's a single woman, always have it in the back of my mind that one day they may get in a relationship and this, you know, for most of my uh, women friends are straight women, but knowing that um, the moment they get into a relationship with a man, that that man is going to be uncomfortable with our friendship. And I think it has been like, I have had, I mean, I've had women friends that I talk to almost every day, like best of friends we tell everything to while I'm like, you know, in a relationship and the moment they get in a relationship, it's like, I can instantly get cut off due to, um, you know, their partner's discomfort with me. And it's no hard feelings. Like I totally, you know, understand i think it's stupid but i understand it (laughs) and i'm not judging them for making that decision so yeah because you lost a friend you know right it's like i lost a friend and it hurts but i think i it's happened to me so much that it's almost like oh yeah i kind of always prepare myself um but what's also interesting about that is when i first started dating netta a conversation that i had with her like before you know i think we were deep into things was a lot of my friends are women and I'm not going to not be friends with them, you know? And if that's something that's not okay, I don't know if it's going to work. Because so I think there's always been like a loyalty that I've had that I, isn't always recipro- uh, reciprocated. That's neither here nor there. But mm-hmm. I'm curious about what has your 
um, platonic relationships with women looked like? Um, and have you been in experiences where people have either questioned like the integrity of that friendship or have you been in situations where you couldn't be friends, like, you know, whether it's your partner or their partner, who's not okay with the nature of the friendship? Yeah. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I fully reciprocate and empathize with that. I, um, well, from high school and boyhood, very much being judged as if I'm pining after some of my mm. friends who are just my friends and I, I love them. Uh, and I feel protective of them and all of these things. And then that is misinterpreted by the broader group as romantic affection. And I've also been in situations, yes, where I have been really close friends with women and then I start dating someone and that woman has some insecurity or some patriarchy to, you know, internalized patriarchy to unlearn and, and they don't feel comfortable. However, I've never been in the opposite situation. No, I've, I've been in three serious relationships in my life. Each was about 18 months. And then the most recent one was two years. And all of those women, none of them had uh, close straight male friends. Mm -hmm. And that speaks volumes because on the one hand, I've never been in the reverse position. Mm -hmm. I have lots of friends who are women. And so I can't empathize with my past partners and my past girlfriends because frankly, a lot of straight cis men, this is a problem we need to talk about is that a lot of us, um, well, I'm queer, but a lot of straight cis men really believe that women are valuable, even subconsciously, based on their sexual, perceived sexual accessibility. Hmm. What I mean by perceived sexual accessibility is basically, when will it be my turn? Hmm. I am going to give a woman more of my attention based on whether or not I think I will at some point have sexual access to her and if I find her attractive. And this is a subconscious learned thing because in patriarchy, we believe that women are objects. All objects have utility. The utility of a woman as an object is sex and reproduction, right? Her body. And so if an object, I deem it as not having utility because that woman's in a relationship, I don't find that woman attractive for whatever reason, I'm not going to humanize that person. And I'm mm -hmm. not going to be interested in talking to them, engaging with them. They're not worth my time. That object is not worth pursuing. If an object does have potential utility, I find them attractive. I should, they're single. Um, I'm going to be interested in that person. So I bring this up to say that a lot of women I know and my friend that I'm friends with have deep wounds in trusting men because a lot of men that, that they develop friendships with platonically eventually when, you know, they are single or whatever, will profess love or profess feelings that are not reciprocated and it ruins the friendship and it makes them feel like, wow, you were just waiting your turn. And I understand that that's not what your original question was, but my experience has definitely been that when, especially when I was younger, now I'm much more comfortable and I'm like, Hey, if I, you know, the next person that I date, whenever that is, this is my life. Like some of my best friends in the world are women who I love dearly. And I'm not going to forego those friendships just to make you feel more, more comfortable um, and, and secure. Mm -hmm. um, however, when I was younger and in my first few relationships, I did, I did cut off some of my friends who are women 
Um, or it would cause rifts in my, my romantic relationships because I would go and travel to visit some of these women and stay with them or sleep in the same bed or something. And it was like completely platonic, Mm -hmm. but, um, those, the implications of that under heteronormativity are like really severe. Um, and one more thing is that what are you scared of? Hmm. Why, why, why would I be scared of, um, why would those boyfriends of your female of your, your friends who are women, sorry, we don't say female. Why would the boyfriends of those women be insecure and uncomfortable? Well, it's because we don't trust men. We're not comfortable with other men because of this perceived sexual accessibility thing. A lot of men are subconsciously again, like waiting their turn hmm. and that's not cool. And that's not humanizing and that's not empathetic and it's causing mistrust. And if you look at larger culture, lots of music, is about infidelity and and cheating and and but specifically emasculating emasculation is false no one can take your masculinity but in the context of a lot of songs it's about emasculating and um what's the word shaming another man and embarrassing him for taking his girl or taking his woman and you know this object taking it right and and so i think yeah it's just this burble of insecurity that a lot of us have this really you know large wound so um, I, I truly believe that men and women, um, can be platonic friends, but I also believe in a sexually empowered world in which it's okay to hook up with your friends. I think you see this a little bit more commonly in queer circles mm-hmm. that okay to like make out with your friends sometimes and still just be a friend and, and love them because also sometimes your friends are really hot and that's okay. And sometimes you'll never do anything with your friends and you still think they're hot because people can be beautiful. Get over it. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I'm <laughs> oh, I have so many thoughts. But something I was curious about for you is, and this is like a weird transition, but it made me think of this question when you talked about like, oh yeah, like friends kissing friends and like, it's all good. Um, what has been your relationship with hookup culture? And if it's not particularly related to you, like how do you see like patriarchal norms within hookup culture? Love that question. Um, as someone who grew up being relating more to the feminine, let's say, or whatever, I'm not really one of those people that's like the divine masculine, divine feminine, you know, everyone. I think that's just new I age. I think that stuff is so weird, by the way. And that's one nice. thing that has caught me off guard when I entered this world is like learning about all these masculinity coaches who are very into this, like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm just, it's real spooky. And I'm like, I don't know what y'all talking about. Unleash, unleash your inner man. Our ancestors did X, Y, Z. Yeah, that's, that's huge. And I'm, I'm developing a men's work practice and eventually want to be a coach. And my very distinctly feminist brand of men's work <laughs> has nothing to do with new age patriarchy. I think saying there's a divine masculine and a feminine is just another way of saying men should be like this. Women should be like this, but there are so many people who do not want to, and just naturally do not fall on those, that binary way of thinking. Mm. And so we are alienating, isolating, and perpetuating a lot of problems with that narrative. But this is all to say that I grew up being more uh, in the social context, right? Like what we perceive as, as expressing gender. I grew up to be more feminine. I was very, very more loud and expressive with my clothes and my clothing choices. Wasn't super great at sports. I really tried hard to, because all the cool boys played soccer and stuff at my school, right? So I, I tried also to impress my father through participating in traditionally masculine activities that I just wasn't good at, but I kept pushing. And that gave way also to thinking, as you just said, that you always need to be 
hypervigilant about women and girls that are around you because you always need to be thinking about when you can have sex and that sex is, is a drive. Sex is not a drive. Uh, drive is like hunger. You need to, to eat, right? To survive. You do not need to have sex. Even people who are saying, well, we're animals biologically, we got to procreate, blah, 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 blah. Shut up. We're in a Dottie, modern- say it again. Say yeah. it again, Dottie. Say it again. Shut up. Because we're, we're, we're in a modern society. All of our needs are different. Things are different. We're not hunter-gatherers, okay? You don't need to have sex. Blue balls are fake. Don't coerce people into doing stuff. But um, let me backtrack and just say that as someone who did get along better with girls, and maybe you will empathize with this, because I was lower on the, the hierarchy of masculinity and all of these things like physical um, prowess at sports and being accepted and well-liked by other boys, by in-grouped, in one of the ways that I could compensate is I can get along really well with women. And so as I got older and I got my growth spurt and I became more conventionally attractive, it became much easier for me than other men to engage in sex and hook up with women and, and have also authentic, sincere, trusting relationships with women, beautiful women. And even if it was platonic, I was able to surround myself with women. And that was a way that I could compensate for these other areas of masculinity that I lacked. And it really was like a, a feedback loop of making me feel more secure because I couldn't compensate in these other ways. I wasn't going to be good at sports. I wasn't going to be the strongest. And so that, that, that really set the precedent for a a lot of my formative sexual experiences and for my relationship with sex overall is it's, it's this way that I can keep even and, and feel better about my place in masculinity. Um, because again, we have this, this society that views sex as a conquest. We, I mean, if someone is good at speaking to women, we literally say he's got game. It's a game. You are trying to win a game, collect points, succeed. Uh, and there's a, there's a goal, there's an end goal. And it's like having penetrative sex is the end goal. And the more penetrative sex you can have, regardless of if it's mutually pleasurable, that is, you know, uh, so, um, that, that really has shaped my relationship. And it's, it is not until the past few years of my life that I've begun to interrogate that as a young man. Mm -hmm. And even recently, um, I've been exploring a journey with, potentially wanting to be celibate for a while. Um, and I've kind of committed that to that for the last few weeks and I'm going to try to keep going just because I am really disenchanted with the idea that all of my major decisions and a lot of decisions have to be made around the pursuit of sex, because candidly, I think that's a lot of what a lot of young men and boys are operating on is we'll, we'll do things we don't want. We'll put ourselves in positions, stay out later, drink more, do all of these things that are actually not what we want to do because it is in the pursuit of sex and we are so disconnected from what physical intimacy really is that it's not even fulfilling, but I'm, I'm really tired and exhausted of changing a lot of who I am and maybe some of my values because I want to have sex and sex is, is something that'll make me feel more masculine. Hmm. Johnny, one thing I really love about talking with you is I've been writing this whole time of like thoughts and reactions and you always say it like you. All, I'm always just like, let Johnny talk because Johnny is teaching the people. Um, <laughs> you are teaching the people right now. I am loving this so much. I know it's been a few weeks like on the celibacy journey, but is there anything you're noticing about yourself? Is there anything that's like thoughts, reflections that have come? Uh, and it's totally fine if you're like, nah, things have been the same. <laughs> well, I think I'm still, I'm, I'm, 
trying to detach from that hypervigilance of always noticing when there's a woman in the room or something like that, because I think this is personal for me and the way my, the way my insecurity shows up about whether or not I'm desired and if I feel validated by being noticed, particularly by women. But I, I think I've made really great strides, not just in the past few weeks, but overall this year, I think I've made really great strides in not again, being hypervigilant and activated whenever there are women around. And I've started to notice this a lot in some of my other friends who are men where they'll be talking to me and we're in a social place, we're thrifting, right? And we're looking at these outfits together and we're like, oh, this is cool. And then all of a sudden a group of of women will walk by and my friend's eyes will go and he's Mm -hmm. no longer engaged in in what I'm telling him or whatever. And it's innocent, it's totally fine, but that it just is speaks to the subconscious hypervigilance that we have because of the game that we're all playing. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not on some higher plane of enlightenment or anything. I'm still really struggling with that. Like, and it's, it's something that I'm just trying to be more mindful of. And um, I will also say that I'm trying to step into a different relationship with like a self-pleasure practice and my own body, because I think um, a lot of us, men are disconnected from our own bodies and from our physicality. And we view sexual pleasure in a really unilateral lens. And I think that's really detrimental to our overall well-being, And it certainly has been for me. And so that's something I'm trying to step into more is really just developing a better understanding of my own body so that next time I'm ready to have sex with someone or have a sexual partner, I'm a better communicator. I can tell mm-hmm. someone exactly what it is that I like and get my needs met in a way that I've been too self-conscious or too shy to articulate previously. Um, so those are some of the things that are, that are coming up for me. Oh yeah. That made me think of a episode I did with Cell earlier uh, yeah. where they talked about like <laughs> the way we have sex is the way that we live our lives. You know, like if we don't communicate with sex when, you know, engaging in sex, that that also correlates with the way that we communicate our needs um, and just our relationships Something else that I kind of thought of, too, is thinking about our relationship to touch and thinking about how um, in a patriarchal context, context, I think for a lot of boys, there becomes a point in our lives where we start to receive touch less and less. So, you know, I think there's a episode where I talk about like my dad giving me this really grand handshake uh, when I was moving out and moving into my freshman dorm and how like these hugs get replaced with handshakes at one or at some point in our lives. And then, you know, as we grow in our friendships uh, with other men, we don't really touch each other. You know, we maybe do a high five, but we're not really hugging many of our friends. Um And then the time that we actually experience touch uh, again is usually in our intimate relationships, Mm -hmm. that those are kind of all the moments that we experience just touch and affection. And in this book that I've been reading or no, not been reading a book that I read, I, I think it was, gosh, I think it was maybe called Unwanted by Jay Stringer. Uh, And in that book, I think it was him. It's going to be awkward if it was a different book. Uh, He talks about how often like the need or desire for sex can often be confused with like the desire for touch. Uh, Given the context where like for some people, relationships, intimate relationships are the only time where they really receive like touch. I'm curious, what has been your relationship to touch uh, either platonically or romantically? Love 
that question. Love everything you just said. That was very insightful and well put. I'm also just going to clarify that what you mean by intimate relationships, you're talking about romantic relationships. Yes. And that contextualization is important because this is, I can go off on a diatribe about this. This is that is deeply personal to me and makes me quite emotional to think about my boyhood self. And I firmly believe that at a certain point, sometimes it's 10, right? Elementary school. Sometimes it's not until middle school. Most boys in the world, but I'll speak to American boys because of my experience. We are socialized through school to stop touching our mothers and our sisters, stop cuddling, stop kissing, stop handholding, stop receiving that natural human oxytocin um, engagement because it is no longer acceptable. Hmm. Meanwhile, many of us have never had or also stop receiving physical intimacy from our fathers. And so, and we are, we're certainly not receiving it from groups of friends and, and other boys in school. So the next person that is acceptable for you to touch for prolonged time is in heteronormativity, your girlfriend, the first went So when you become romantically active or sexually active for late bloomers like me, and also people that went through growth spurts and for, for many years, you know, we're not seen as desirable. And, and for many boys and young men for a lot of their lives, that means we go through years of being deprived of touch. Hmm. And on a whole nother note, I think that's one of the biggest crises in today with incel culture, with mass shooters, with domestic violence. Um, we have a society of lonely, touch-starved, affection-starved men who don't know how to articulate that. Hmm. But that's also a callback to our original conversation about how a lot of boys and men will use women as therapists because if the first person after years, it could be five years, six years, right? From when you're 10 to 17, whenever it is that you start dating someone first, that's a stretch of time where you're finally able to get some physical intimacy from someone. And so you jump into that and it's like, okay, this is who I get to hug. This is who I hold hands with. This is who I have sex with. This is who I share my secrets with. This is, this is now who I have a degree of emotional intimacy that I've never had with anyone before. And maybe will never have for a long time, particularly not with another man because, and and so that leads to this problem of, I'm going to use this person as my therapist, my best friend, my fuck buddy, but like everything, get everything from this one person and put pressure and expectation on this young woman or this girl to do that for me. And I also think this may be a hot take, but I think that leads to a lot of erectile dysfunction as well. And uh, I believe there are a lot of boys and men who are confusing sexual desire for a need for just touch and comfort. And because the first person that like, since our moms that we have been able to receive physical attention from our romantic partner will now start to say, well, if I want that comfort, that same familiar comfort, it has to be through sex. Mm -hmm. So we have men who can't get an erection when they want to have sex because it's actually deep down what they just want is to to cuddle or to be Mm -hmm. held. And they're not able to articulate that. And so then they feel shame and frustrated in the bedroom because they tried to maybe initiate sex and now it's quote unquote, it's not working. And then we also have men who have partners or people crying in their shoulder. They need to be supported. They're cuddling, just platonically watching a movie and they are getting aroused. They're feeling erect. Mm -hmm. They're doing these things regardless of what their partner's mood is. Or even if their partner's crying, that's an inappropriate time. That's not when 
you're supposed to be having sex, you're supposed to be supportive, but it's because we associate physical contact with sexual contact and sexual intimacy. So there is a huge disconnect between the emotional intimacy that you are supposed to feel with many people and the physical intimacy that you are supposed to feel with many people as part of the human experience. And then what we as men actually silo ourselves into. And I think that's causing a whole lot of heartache, a whole lot of mental health issues and a lot of isolation and loneliness. So that's something that I really try to um, embody in my daily life is gentle, warm masculinity that is extremely physically effective especially with other men. And I really try to model that so that men feel more comfortable and know that, you know, um, talk about my identity. Like I'm a six, four, I'm a big man. Hugging me will feel a lot more, I think, protective and familiar and, and like really call in a lot, you know, your boyhood self kind of, cause I'm a big man that's wrapping my arms around you. And so I really, I really do keep that in my heart and in my head as I go through life. So um, yeah, my, so my personal relationship with touch is that I'm extremely lucky. I'm extremely privileged for a long time, for many years. That was my experience. I stopped touching my mother. I stopped touching my sister. My father and I certainly didn't have a physically intimate relationship, but later on in high school, when I got along well with girls, there was some hugging that took place, but that was my experience too, is that it it was most serious in sexual contexts. And, um, I, I was really starved for attention from other boys. I, it, it's not just because I was a closeted, like budding queer boy, but it was in gener- genuinely like same group gendered spaces are really important and feeling accepted and feeling loved by your same gender is really important. But boys so rarely experience that full acceptance and comfort that I, that was my experience. I really, I wanted my friends who are boys to, to hug me and to, to love me. And I, I never got that. And that's even something through college that I really I strived for, but I kept, it kept, kept feeling disappointed and let down by a lot of men, especially when they were around other men. Hmm. I've had the experience of boys and men confiding in me or feeling close to me one-on-one and then out in groups or in social settings, especially if that boy or that man is like more conventionally masculine and is better at code switching and fitting in with men than me, they will start to be cold to me and to check out. And, um, and that has been really hard and really heartbreaking. Um, so I will, I will hop off my soapbox and just say I'm, but I am still extremely privileged because in recent years and just who I am as a person, I actually have had access to a lot more physical contact platonically from all different genders than I would say most men do. And that is something I feel extremely privileged and grateful for, but it's also something that I have personally worked towards and and worked through because it is an essential human need. And I'm not willing to compromise that need for myself because it is something I need, but it's also something I struggle with. Like I still like with my roommate, it was one of my best friends of 11 years and she is such a phenomenal woman. And she, she cares about me a lot. Um, but just the other day, like I was feeling emotional about my recent breakup and I, and I, I think I needed someone to hold me. And instead I like didn't want her to see me cry. And I went and I took a shower and I felt very emotional. I cried a little bit in the shower, not to say I haven't cried in front of my roommate Nina before and and let her hold me. And, but it, there still is a lot of these moments of resistance, which is just internalized patriarchal masculinity. (laughs) First, uh, I just want the listeners to know that if you have not got a hug from Johnny, Listen, I'm telling you, it will change your life. You got to go get you a hug. for If you don't do anything else, I need you to DM Johnny 
figure out where they're located and I need you to get a hug from Johnny. Um, <laughs> I'm telling y'all, you got it. You got to experience. I'm, I'm speaking from experience. Um, it's also interesting. I kind of randomly thought about how when men are drunk, how like touchy they become with each other. Like how yeah. like when men are drunk, they are so huggy. They are so like holdy uh, with their friends. Um, so yeah, I just I just randomly thought about that. Something I'm curious about is imagine you are speaking to a person um, who, you know, let's say all of their friends fully embody patriarchal masculinity. They've just started this journey of unlearning um, and they really want to have that physical intimacy like with their friends. Where do you, where do they start? Like, how do you, you know what I mean? Like what kind of advice would you give them or what would you say? How did you start your journey to unlearning? Yeah. First and foremost, it's really brave to be thinking about this. So whoever's listening that finds themselves in the position where all of your men, male friends are patriarchally, patriarchally masculine, that's a mouthful, and you're feeling disconnected and you're feeling a lack of physical intimacy, it's really brave of you to even be thinking about this. Because for so many years, my internalized homophobia prevented me from acknowledging that this is something that I wanted. And it caused me a lot of pain and shame. But I still did go out and embody this, but I was kind of just really, you know, uh, ignoring that. And so I have some sad news for you, which is that you will have to step into a lot more discomfort and potentially a, a few awkward, shameful and ostracizing moments, depending on where the man you're intending to, to bridge physical intimacy with, depending on where he's at in his journey. One of the best pieces of advice that I can give, which I've received from a mentor of mine named Voy Vyacek, who's who's one of those men's work coaches, mm-hmm. um, he told me, do not so freely give your gifts to people who are not ready to receive them. Mm. And I think there's something to be said for modeling something and really working hard to, to help someone heal and to, to give a gift. But there's also something to be said for don't try, try, try again, that persistence, right? If it's going to hurt you, focus your attention elsewhere. So if you're getting these red flags and someone is spurning you and and it really just doesn't make you feel good, it's okay to redirect and find someone else. So I'll just say that. But the advice that I have is first to start one-on-one. It is way too intimidating to try in a group setting. And so often, I was just talking about this today in the weekly men's group that I lead, we talk about intimacy in all male spaces um, teasing and with a homoerotic phrase. It's joking. It's joking. Oh, you fucking handsome bastard. You be careful, dude. I'm like, I'm about to act up right now. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> like that, that type of phrasing through humor, we are allowing us, it, it's acceptable to compliment another man, to say he looks good, to, to smack his ass. Right. Like, and it's so, it's so funny. I, I would love to, to dissect what does homosocial mean and all this, but um, mm-hmm. I will say one-on-one is the best thing to do first. And don't be intimidated by like, you don't have to do eye gazing or really deep hugs, right? You can start with a touch on the side of the arm. Mm-hmm. If, you are telling something to someone like model it first, be vulnerable and then bridge physical contact. So if Destin and I are, are, are sitting together, we're having coffee, we're across the table from each other. We both have our hands on the table, holding our coffee cups. And I tell him, 
I've really been struggling with my most recent breakup and I'm feeling really guilty. Like I've done something wrong because I initiated the breakup and I'm feeling a lot of, um, a lot of pain around that. And I reach out and I grab his hand or I, or I touch his arm to signal to him that that's what I'm looking for. That's a really a subtle way. Instead of, you don't have to verbalize it. You can just try to model it and see what that person does. I'm willing to bet that no matter how nervous you are to bridge that, you're not going to have someone that like jerks their hand away and like yells at you. Right. Um, so try one-on-one, try it in some different ways. Um, and if you're feeling so bold, maybe even ask like, fuck man, I'm having a really hard day. I just need a hug. See, see, see what that does. See what that does. Model it. It's going to be uncomfortable, but someone's got to do it. And for your patriarchal friends, it's got to be you. If you're the one thinking about this, unfortunately, that just means more responsibility for you. No, that's very real. And I think a a quick disclaimer that I think I'd throw out there is that um, physical touch isn't the only way to experience intimacy and that it is okay. Like there are some folks who just don't like to be touched. Um, And it could be for many reasons, their own traumas. Um, So if there are like some male folks who don't want to engage in that physical touch it may not necessarily be directly rooted in patriarchy as it could be just like different love languages um which i think too what's what's cool about that too is like i think that men really just need to learn how to love better (laughs) like i think what it really comes down to i think it's like read all about love by bell hooks that's all i'll say is if your younger self was to see you now what would they be most proud of and how would they still push you to grow? So what would they say? Wow. Like I'm so proud that you are here. And then in what ways would they still kind of gently be pushing you and saying, Hey, go further in this area. Wow. I just, I just shed two tears. I got two little tears in my eyes right now. Um, I think I'll start with like a humorous lens. If my boyhood self looked at me, the I'm, I'm you know I'm a big, strong six foot four guy. I think he'd be stoked. He'd be like, "Hell yeah!" Like I'm not I'm not a scared little boy anymore. I'm not little. Um, I obviously we'll throw this in there, but I I grew up in a household of the DV, and I spent a lot of my boyhood years and even through high school, even after I got taller, I, I didn't feel big or strong, and I felt very scared and intimidated a lot. So I think my boyhood self would, would be really amazed and, um, yeah, just, just stoked on the fact that I am a physically large person and I feel much more confident with my physical presence and I no longer carry a lot of that fear with me. Um, so yeah, muscles. Wow. He looks like a real man. Like that's, that's what my boyhood self with, you know, my, with a lot of learned patriarchy, my boyhood self would feel stoked about that. Um, but all bodies, you know, to be a man, you do not need big muscles, but that is candidly what my boyhood self would feel. Um, and I think he would also be so amazed and impressed and thankful, um, and in disbelief about the number of close friendships with other men that I have. Um, I spent so much time grieving and feeling like there was something wrong with me and feeling disconnected from other boys and just not being fulfilled from that sincere friendship lens. And so, I mean, I have, I want to, I want to say their names are going to listen to this podcast. I have John Feldkamp. I have Lewis Kendall. I have Sharfuz. I have, I'm not going to name their last names. I have 
Jericho and Owen and I have Destin and I have, I have just so many wonderful men, you know, Spencer Rogers and Greg and like, I have made it one of my life missions to, um, to do this work and to, to do men's work and, and cultivate these relationships. But I don't think my boyhood self would ever have thought that I would be accepted by other men. And, um, that would be great. And then, and then I also think that my boyhood self would be like, damn, you're kind of, you're kind of good looking and stylish. Like you figured it out. You know, you're like, not you fine. <laughs> yeah, okay. Woo. You're fine. Um, and then lastly, I, I, my boyhood self would push me to be closer with my mother and my sister. My boyhood self really wants to cuddle with them on the couch and read Harry Potter or Aragon aloud or the Red Wall series. My boyhood self really wants to like tickle my mom and, and come up, you know, and like bother her while she's cooking or, or, um, and, and do more for her as well. I think my boyhood self would, would say like, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, just love, love your mom and your sister more. Mm. Um, that's something that I'm really, really working on, but that was, that was actually what really made me emotional is when you asked the last part of the question, what would your boyhood self tell, uh, tell you to do better at? I was like, man, <laughs> it's loving my mother and my sister. <laughs> mm. That just made me feel really warm inside, especially when you were talking about what that would look like in your life. And now I'm like, dang, let me go ahead and, and tickle my mom too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Johnny, tell us more about the work that you do, how people can get in touch with you. Um, yeah, we just love to provide space to kind of learn more. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to do a little bit of a background just to say that um, those those formative experiences in high school where a lot of my friends that were girls would disclose experiences of essay or coercion really impacted me. So from my freshman year of college, I went to the University of Rochester in upstate New York. And I was lucky enough to, during orientation, be exposed to a group at my school called Men Opposing Violence Everywhere, MOVE. And this was a group of about seven guys on a campus of 3,000 undergrads who wanted to promote sexual assault awareness um, and sexual assault prevention awareness and education. And so we facilitated small group dialogue with sports teams and fraternities and residence halls and we ended up being a formal part of every semester's Greek life integration is you have to go through a course and basically talk to us in a small session about sexual violence and, and toxic masculinity, all these things. So I joined that group from the get-go from freshman year, and I actually ended up presiding over it. And then later on, I took a fifth-year scholarship in gender studies and that, and I interned and then worked at the domestic violence center, which which really just opened my world to a, what I experienced and coming to terms with that, um, as a survivor of DV myself, and then B, where do I like being critical about where do I stand to make the most impact? Because working in a residential shelter at a domestic violence center, my presence was traumatizing and triggering for a lot of women and survivors, um, just because I'm a man. And then my, also my presence also was really helpful and healing because I'm maybe one of the first safe men that they've seen who's giving them a meal or helping do their intake or helping advocate them for them in a court system or whatever, but it is not where I can affect change. Mm -hmm. So past two years, I've realized that particularly with my overlapping identities as a cis man, as a white man, um, as a tall man, right? Like there's, as, a, as a very masculine presenting, I got a beard, you know, all these things like the, the area where I can have most impact is other men will listen to me. And if I step into that power and 
And I don't mean power in a, you know, oh, dominance power hierarchy way, but I mean like my power and my truth. And if I speak my truth, my truth will tell me and tell other men, hey, we got to fix some shit. And and we're, we're not okay. And also the, the, what, the reason that we're not okay is X, Y, and Z. Um, so that was a very long tangent just to contextualize my, uh, the past two years, my passion has been this field called men's work, which is what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it is any process that facilitates introspection, healing, community building, growth, teaching mm-hmm. emotional regulation, acknowledging the importance of emotional intelligence, any healing work that men engage in, that is all men's work and creating these spaces, building community without the context of sports, alcohol, or some action. And that is my passion in life. I'm, I, I'm really interested in, in building those spaces. So to get in touch with me, you can find me um, at Johnstagram. So J-O-H-N Stagram, like Instagram, Johnstagram <laughs> underscore one on Instagram. And you can also uh, reach out to my new organization called Hey Brother Company that I'm starting. Yeah, yeah. So I am formalizing uh, an organization that's going to be, you know, a business um, for men's work. And we're going to be a part consultancy, part membership organization for men to, again, build community heal. It'll be both a virtual space, um, a blog and resource. Center. I'll promote wonderful resources such as this podcast, such as books by Bell Hooks, Liz Plank, Justin Baldoni, any resources that have helped me on my men's work journey. I'm going to have a platform for that. And it will also be a physical space for healthy masculinity retreats. I led my first healthy masculinity retreat this past July for um, eight other men who flew from around the country, didn't know each other. And in Minnesota on the Mississippi River, we rented out a lodge and we um, I facilitated communal cooking, inner child meditation, some yoga sessions. We screened a film called The Mask You Live In and then cried together and about it. We played. We played tag. We kayaked. We played spike ball. We unleashed a lot of these, you know, these inner childs. And, um, and so I'm planning uh, at least two retreats next year. And those will be experiences that any and all men, um, you know, can have access to. Um, so to find out more about that, we're going to include a link to submit your contact information so that I can add you to my email list and you can find out about Hey Brother Company. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's my long, uh, about me and about the work that I do. And I'm hoping that I, I truly do think I'm not hoping, I do think that men's work is the thing that's going to change the world. I believe so many of our social problems, such as mass shootings and suicide and, um, domestic violence. And there's so many things exist because men are not okay. And so any deliberate work that seeks to unpack that and provide space for men to be okay, we are going to see an incredible alleviation of some of these other problems. Um, so that's, that's my, my shtick. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's all going to be great. I so <laughs> appreciate the work that you're currently doing. I'm excited for the work that you're going to do. Uh, and yeah, I've just really appreciated uh, recording this episode with you. This has been probably one of the easiest episodes I've recorded. Like, I don't <laughs> think there's going to be the only thing I have to edit is me. <laughs> Nothing of you, but me. <laughs> you know, I, I tried my best to be very articulate and I, I love speaking with you. I think um, I want to actually make some space at the end of this episode just to express my sincere gratitude to you because you are a mentor of mine in many ways, you know, unbeknownst to you, you have inspired me to get going on my journey and formalize the organization, right? Because you have this amazing, amazing podcast and an Instagram page that's gaining such following and you are speaking your truth. 
And you are a brand of men's work slash embodiment of healthy masculinity that I really resonate with because you're right. There are so many men's work spaces and coaches out there that are just spitting the same old yarn of new age patriarchy. And it is not helpful, but it does appeal to a lot of men because it's a familiar message repackaged. So I am just so incredibly grateful for the work that you do and all of the advocacy that you do for black women and black men and bringing in some of the scholarship and literature that you quote so often um, because you are doing also an essential service to this world. And I'm so grateful to, to be a part of it with you. And I, I see a lot of really cool things ahead of us. Oh, thank you. I'm so bad at accepting compliments, but I feel really warm. So that's my way of saying it. It means a lot to hear you say that. Good. Well, folks, you have heard another episode of Rethinking Manhood. We've been off for the past two weeks, but we are back. You're back. <laughs> uh, we are back and we are better. Um, and yeah, I appreciate you all for listening and I'll see y'all next week. Peace. Dear men and masculine folks, Relationships are hard and patriarchy makes them even harder. We may not have been the best models or have seen the best models of relationships and love in our households, but it's never too late to reframe our minds and start a new journey. For even if we weren't modeled a love that heals and restores, we can go out and give that love and receive that love because we were made to be more than just givers, but receivers too. So this week, I challenge you to receive love, receive joy, Receive rest, receive peace, receive the acceptance that you deserve and are worthy of. Know that you are so loved by me and many others. Love your friend, your brother, your cousin, your little homie from across the street, your teacher, your student, your peer. Rethinking Manhood. I'll see you later.